This summer, we are taking on the stories in First and Second Samuel and First Kings. These are the stories of the crown. These are the stories of Jesus's family tree. This week at my house, we had rain and still no school assignments. So my high school age son took to binge watching a show on television called All American. Uh, I haven't watched the show, but I would walk through the room and overhear the dialogue and overhear the, the music, and I sensed the high drama of the show. It took me back to my days of 90210. And so when I would walk through the room and All American was on, I would say to Daniel, you watching your soap opera again? Which did this week lead to me explaining to Daniel that soap operas <laughs> were dramas of the 1950s, 60s, 70s that aired in the middle of the day primarily for housewives and they advertised soaps, detergents, cleaning products. Daniel decided this week he wants to be a housewife. Yeah. You know what? It is time for school to start. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell Daniel, but reading 2 Samuel is a bit like watching a soap opera. Since last we left King David, confronted by the prophet Nathan for the death of Uriah and the taking of Bathsheba, David's sons have grown up to duplicate some of his very self-centered and violent ways, which has led to high drama. 2 Samuel chapters 12 through 18 will hook you. You can read the whole thing in one setting. The drama is thick. David's son Amnon violently attacks David's daughter Tamar. And then another of David's sons, Absalom, kills Amnon. Absalom is banished for three years. And then David gives permission for Absalom to return to Jerusalem, but he says he will not see him. However, in chapter 14, we are given this glimpse at Absalom. In all of Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut his hair, the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it and it would weigh about five pounds. Okay, that is a soap opera star. It is, or the star of a butter commercial, right? <laughs> Absalom plots to seize the crown for himself. He plans a revolt. He plans an attack on his father, King David. And so David then sends out troops with these instructions. And this is our scripture passage for today from chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of his commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. 
he was left hanging in midair while the mule that he was riding kept on going. And 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom. They struck him and they killed him. Then the Cushites arrived to King David and said, My lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all those who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. He went outside and he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It is the very last verse of that passage that I find the most captivating. My son Absalom, Absalom, if I had died instead of you. We've watched David grieve before. In the very first chapter of this book of the Bible, King Saul and his son Jonathan are killed. And from David's mouth comes this poetic lament three times how the mighty have fallen. But in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, there's no eloquence. It's as if the words simply escape the king poet. And we get just agony. We get raw pain from David. Five times he cries out, my son, and three times his name, Absalom. It's not hard to imagine the tremendous difficulty of the death of a child. If we know nothing of David's story other than this very chapter where Absalom, his son, is killed in battle, we get the grief, right? We understand it. We understand the pain. Few things, if anything, could be worse than the loss of a child. Only Absalom matters in this moment. The victory in the battle is irrelevant to the king. He is, in this scene, more importantly, a father. He doesn't ask for the details of the battle. There is only anguish. The movie Cry the Beloved Country tells the story of two fathers in South Africa in the 1940s who lose their sons to death. One of those fathers is God's man. He's a priest, a pastor. His son is sentenced to death by hanging and is named in the book and in the movie, appropriately enough, Absalom. The scenes of this father hearing the death sentence for his son and then waiting for that death sentence to be carried out are excruciating. They are painful. I had a hard time sitting in the room during those scenes. But it was the larger story of the movie that really hooked me. The larger story is apartheid in South Africa And how the sin of apartheid, the separation, the broken relationship 
of the fathers, one white and the other black, who lived in the same village, how that separation, that broken relationship comes to rest on the sons, ultimately resulting in their deaths. This too is, I believe, the larger story of King David and his son Absalom. Absalom's story is an extension of his father's. The selfish choices, the broken relationships rest on this grown child who crafts a rebellion with quite a following. But David isn't an innocent bystander. While the narrative in chapter 18 wants to make sure that we know that David didn't kill this son with his own hands, we are told he cannot fight in the battle, and we are told that David commands to three uh, generals, three commanders, that his son be protected. He says, be gentle with the young man for my sake. And yet, ultimately, we know that David bears some responsibility here. His son's story is simply a continuation. It might even be a summation of his father's story. When I was on vacation a few weeks ago, we stayed in a house that was on the side of a mountain in New Mexico. And the trek up, the road up to that house was very long and steep. When I sat on the porch, I could see hawks flying by at eye level. That's how high up we were. It was beautiful. The porch on the house was also the best view of the town in the valley, Angel Fire. When I sat on that porch, I could see all the places that we'd been that day. I could see the grocery store. I could see Main Street. I could see the churches. I could see the brewery. I could see the gas station that we'd been to. What I believe about this chapter of 2 Samuel, what I think about Absalom is that he gives us a really good view of where we've been with King David. In Absalom, we see the beauty. We see the charm, but we also see the selfish grasping, and we see the broken relationships. The name Absalom is really significant. It's really important in Hebrew, it literally means father's peace, P-E-A-C-E. What's the deal in 2 Samuel with the father's shalom, with the father's peace? Absalom, he's got quite a temper, and he's banished, and then he's absent for three years. You know, that's no way for peace to behave, <laughs> The peace of the house of David is certainly not settled. Biblically speaking, peace, shalom, means fullness. It means a sense of well-being. Theologian Frederick Buechner wrote, Peace has come to mean a time where there aren't any wars or any major wars. We'd settle for that. But in Hebrew, he said, peace means fullness. It means having everything that you need to be holy yourself. It means having everything you need to be happily yourself. That's what peace is in the Bible. The father's shalom, the peace of the king. In 2 Samuel, it hangs in a tree. 
There's this pause in chapter 18 where we await the fate of the peace of King David. Can David really have what he needs to be complete? Can David really have what he needs to be whole? Theologian Robert Alter translates verse 9 of our passage this way. He says, Absalom's head was caught in the terebinth. That's a tree of the cashew family. His head was caught in a terebinth, and he dangled between heaven and earth while the mule which was beneath him passed on. So the mule is the usual mount of princes and kings in these stories. So Absalom literally loses his royal seat. The peace loses the royal seat. It dangles helplessly between the sky and earth. And then it's thrown into a nameless grave. It's gone. It's dead. The father and the kingdom are without peace. Old Testament professor Matthew Schlem wrote this. The people of the Bible knew how fragile life could be. They knew how shalom could escape our grasp. So when people asked how others were doing, they didn't keep it on the generic level of how so-and-so. Instead, they would cut to the chase and they would say, do they have shalom? Does so-and-so have peace? Because people who have shalom, people who have peace have everything they need. And people who lack peace, it doesn't matter what they have. Things aren't right. This seems to be true for the one who wears the crown in the Hebrew Bible. King David has everything. He has everything one could want, and yet he lacks shalom. He lacks peace. And we are to see that things aren't right. Things aren't right when peace is thrown into an unmarked grave. Peace for the faithful, peace for us is both important and it's elusive. There aren't any guarantees that peace will come and live in our house for good, right? So it's worthy of our attention. We must tend to peace. We must be aware of peace and its presence. Theologian Ellen Davis says that shalom invites us to this daily understanding that my well-being is integrated to your well-being. My well-being is integrated to the well-being of all of creation that is around me. The well-being of people, the well-being of plants, the well-being of animals, all of it. Peace prioritizes my relationship with creation. Peace prioritizes your relationship with creation. I've wondered this week, is King David really a good father? Does he love his children? I believe his grief in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. But a counselor friend reminded me, we grieve attachments, any attachment, healthy or unhealthy that we lose, we grieve. We grieve losses. 
We can and we do grieve people and relationships that are not good for us. I can't decide about David as a father. Does he love his children? Does he really seek their well-being? I'm not sure. In this scripture passage, he says, be gentle with the boy for my sake. Is that really seeking his well-being? I don't know. But maybe that's what the Bible intends. Some ambiguity on the topic to get me thinking about love and practicing love. The kind of love, the priority of relationship that leads to peace. That leads to shalom. I think I told you last week that I'm much enjoying Brian McLaren's book, The Great Spiritual Migration, this summer. Where he calls the church to prioritize love over belief. In his final chapter, he titles the final chapter, The Broken Open Heart. And he writes in this chapter, I wish that we as Christians could get to the place where we need to be by saying the right words. (laughs) But the capacity to endure and suffer seems to be required of us. And the capacity to endure and suffer generously without bitterness, without revenge, without fail is essential. It's essential to get to the place where we need to be as a church. And quoting the Sufi, a Sufi master, he says, God breaks the heart again and again and again until the heart stays open. Then McLaren imagines the cross, the cross in its very simple and physical form, embodies the idea that tension can pull a heart open. The beams of a cross stretch out four ways, left and right and up and down. And then the arms of a cross converge in the center. We can imagine that that center is a heart, a heart that can be pulled open so fully that it can contain, that it can hold everything. That's the story of the cross. It really is. (laughs) A heart that is open enough to hold everything. That's what I want. The scripture says that David is one after God's own heart in a couple of places. In 1 Samuel and in Acts. And I believe that David's intention was there at times. So is my intention there at times. To be one after God's own heart. But I need to remember that it's Jesus, not David, who really shows me what God's heart is like. Pulled open so fully to hold everything. Will you pray with me? Eternal God, the story of the cross is your story a heart that is open to hold the pain of the world. Lord, we know that you seek the well-being of creation. You long for our peace, our shalom, 
and we do too. May peace thrive here. May our hearts open to all the sorrow and all the joy that this life offers. We ask this in the name of the one who shows us the way, Jesus the Christ. Amen.